right, we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 13. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal, and in the name of David, and then they waited. And, David ans- and D- Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my wheat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. Thank you so much, Zach. If you are approaching Baltimore on I-95 from this area, as you come into Baltimore, you get a glimpse of the city, kind of the the, uh, skyline there. You see it out in a distance, and then shortly after that, you go through a tunnel, or I should say you pay the toll, right, on I-95, and then you go through the tunnel. And the tunnel is a very different picture, so you've gone from seeing the skylight to being kind of in the tunnel, there's walls, there's only two lanes, there's lights, and, and then eventually, hopefully traffic's moving okay, you come out of the tunnel, and you come back into the, I don't know, six, eight-lane chaos that is I-95, and you see the city again. But for that brief time, the view looks entirely different. I thought about that, especially in the passage that Zach just read, because 1 Samuel 25 seems so different than 1 Samuel 24, And 26, it's like a a brief detour. All all of a sudden, it's different than where we have been. And just a a word on context, if you are joining us, we've been looking at the life of David. And over the last several weeks, here's where we've been. David has been anointed to be the next king of Israel. God has chosen him. But David is in hiding. He's in exile. He is actually on the run. He's had to deal with the murderous jealousy of the current king, King Saul. Along the way, he has kind of assembled a a group that's with him, and that group is about 600 people. And with assembling that group around him, he has to take care of their needs. He has to provide for their food, for their lodging. So he has that responsibility now. And so 
We're going to pick up Saul and David in chapter 26, but in this story, Saul fades to the background and two other characters emerge. One is named Nabal and one is named Abigail. And the portion of this chapter that was read may be a little unfamiliar because we don't understand a custom of the day. So a custom of the day is if there was someone like David who had a a band of people. And again, it's a a little bit more nomadic of time. So he would be wandering. and, And the idea was as he would wander, he would have maybe some measure of responsibility to take care of the land and the area where he was. So he might look after livestock, the animals. He might look after the property, the, the, the members of a family if he was nearby. And in exchange for that, the custom was, and it was a common custom, is that he might be fed, especially if there was a big feast, he and his men would be fed as somewhat a, a way of saying thanks for taking care that no bandits or no robbers or no thieves or no people that would mean harm to the family would, would have their way. This is all David asked for. He didn't threaten. He asked. He made a humble request. The only challenge is that the man who receives the request is a fool. It's what his name means. As a matter of fact, as you read the story, the narrator will say this in verse 3. We heard it early. That Nabal was harsh and badly behaved. His servants, his own servants, will say that he is a worthless man who won't listen to anyone, in verse 17. His own wife will say, in verse 25, he's worthless and he's foolish. So this is who David has encountered, and this fool does not honor David's request, but instead of honoring the request, he actually insults David and accuses David. He asks a question, and we heard it a moment ago. He asks this question in verse 10. He says, who is this David? He knew. He knew exactly who this David was. It's like, who's this guy? And he even implies like, you know, there are a lot of of servants running away from their masters these days. And he knows this is not what's going on with David fleeing from Saul as Saul is trying to kill David. That's not what's going on here. And he knows it, but he's insulting and he's accusing David. And what else I notice about this man named Nabal is how self-focused he is. I think I counted six personal pronouns where he says me and my and me and my and I and this is the focus of this man's existence. David has run into a fool and the fact is this is the world we live in. We live in the same world David did where sometimes despite the best of intentions things go wrong and we encounter people that don't treat us in the right way. What would you have felt? What would you have said? What would you have done if you were David? Before we get too far into this message, you have to put yourself there. Imagine you're David and you have a a Nabal in your life and how easy it might be for you to lose your way and having to deal with that person. The fact is, this may not be hypothetical for many in this room. You may actually be dealing with someone that is foolish, As a matter of fact, you may be dealing with a roommate that for whatever reason has decided to be entirely selfish and it's made your life so stressful because you're having to deal with that. 
You may be dealing with a coworker or a boss that you have no understanding why, but they've chosen to accuse you. They've chosen to go to work, and it seems like they are on a mission to just take you down. You might have run into this person in the form of a, maybe it's even just like a nameless bureaucrat that actually holds the keys. Their signature would move your life forward in a in a, in a hundred ways, but instead they're being more and more and more difficult. It could be that you have a, a spouse where the relationship has just gone in a very, very difficult place and you cannot seem to like move in any positive direction. Or it may be a teacher or a professor that actually has the ability to make your life pretty miserable. Always changing the goalposts. When you get this assignment, actually, we need this. Actually, I need this. Maybe it's a, a friend or a family member. And they've made some dumb, costly decisions. And it would be one thing if it's just their own business that they could attend to, but it actually affects you, their foolishness. Or maybe a relationship has gone poorly with a child or a parent. Instead of what once was a decent relationship where you got along, it's actually turned into a combative thing where you really can't say anything without it just getting all stirred up. The reality that this story tells, the reality that all of Scripture tells, is that you and I will be mistreated. We will be sinned against. This is life in a broken, fallen world. The reality Scripture also tells us is that we will be tempted, when we're sinned against, we'll actually be tempted to sin against others. And sometimes we will give in to that temptation. So the question, what's going on in the heart of David? How will he respond? This story, I think, gives us an awareness of what happened to David in this story can actually happen to any of us. And if David, who is the one like, God looks on the heart and sees like David, a man after God's own heart. If David could go to the places he goes in this story. If David, who is the future king, could write, the Lord is my shepherd, I I lack nothing. If he could go to the places he goes, then surely we should see something about our own lives. What happens to David when he's told, Nabal's not playing ball? His response, we heard Zach read a moment ago, was strap on your swords. We're going to deal with it. This story illuminates something, and that is a, a very real danger. A danger that is real. A danger in this instance because hundreds of people are following David. A danger that's very real in our own lives in that our our own soul could be on the line as well as how we might affect others. This story has some things to teach us in this danger that is real. This story shows us first how quickly, how quickly we can charge off in a terrible direction. David, when he gets like, he doesn't get the answer he wants, strap on your swords, we're leaving and we're leaving right now. We're going to take care of this. David doesn't stop to ask, like, what's the best way to handle this? What might God want here? You notice the pace. It's like, it's almost breathtaking. He he just goes immediately. What a danger that even the most calm person, even the most patient person 
given the right set of circumstances, could move at this sort of pace. No real thought. No, I wonder what God would have me to do here. It's amazing how quickly we can charge off in a terrible direction, but in this story we see David decides he is going to take out every male in Nabal's family, every one of them. Do you notice how aggressive, how aggressive we can be toward opponents? His words in verse 22, every male in the whole family, in the whole household, I'm going to kill them all. There's not going to be one trace left of this family. How soon are you going to do that, David? By morning, it's going to happen. What aggression he's showing, how dangerous it is when the only option we see before us is like the nuclear option. Devastate everything in our path. You read the story of David, and David is moving at such a quick pace and has all these aggressive intentions. But in the midst of it, he also feels very justified. It opens our eyes to how justified we can feel about our actions. How justified we can feel about our own actions. In his mind, it's just this clear. They should pay. As a matter of fact, this is his justification. In verse 21, he says... Nabal has returned evil for good. I was offering good. I showed kindness. All that was in vain. He feels very justified. He even brings God into it. He says in verse 22, Nabal's not going to win against the enemy, against the enemies of David, and, and God's going to see to it that the enemies of David are going to be put down. David, is this really about God? You're talking about God's vengeance, but you're the one that grabbed the sword. Isn't this more about David and the insult and the accusation? How quickly, how quickly we can demonize others. How quickly, when someone does something that just ticks us off, we can envision them as essentially Satan incarnate with no good motive, no good action, no good reason, nothing good ever that they ever did. We can quickly go there. And and at the same time, what we do is we demonize them and we make ourselves out to be saints. We feel totally justified because all I was trying to do was, well, I've always tried to be the kind of person that I would never act like that. I was just trying. I don't understand why she could, why he could. I I would never. I'm, I'm All I'm trying to do, and we make ourselves out to be the person with the perfect motives, perfect intentions, perfect behavior, perfect feelings. Any, any anger we feel like, that's, you know, that's the righteous anger category. How quickly, how quickly we can go there. How quickly do we find, like, a, there's just no other way of seeing this. Like, you come at me personally, or I come at your, your family member, your spouse, your kids, your friends, And you go, no, no, no. There's no justification for you, and there's every justification for me. I guess what strikes me the most in this whole story of chapter 25 is that David really doesn't see what's going on. And it's such a contrast between chapter 24 and chapter 25. 
I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe you were here last week. In chapter 24, David has to show some of the most amazing restraint in all of Scripture. I can't think of a place where like more restraint is shown. So David, remember that he had an opportunity to kill King Saul, who, given the chance, was going to kill David. And it's like the circumstances aligned. And even David's men are encouraging him, like, let's go for it. This is the day that the Lord has made. We can take care of Saul once and for all. You'll be king. We can eliminate this. And David, despite every circumstance that would seem like, seemed like a good idea, take him out. David restrains himself in chapter 24. Chapter 24, 12, he says, like, may the Lord avenge you, Saul. I'm not going to. May the Lord avenge you. But here in chapter 25, it's, it's almost the exact opposite. Seems like he has all the justification he could possibly want. How blind, church, how blind we can be to our own inconsistencies. We don't even realize sometimes that what I'm saying doesn't really line up with the facts in this case. So we look at David, but the question I have is, does any of this sound familiar to you? Do we see ourselves here in any way? Frankly, I see myself in every description that I just gave. I see myself even a few months back. I'll spare you the details. It wasn't related to Ogletown, but something had really set me off. And no, I wasn't going to take out like all male family members of a family. I had no intention of doing that. But I was mad. I was hot. So clearly in my mind, I was in the right so I was just going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with the issue. I'm going to set things straight. I'm going to make sure my voice is heard. And no one's going to be like left kind of wondering what Curtis thinks about this. I'm going to make sure it's very, very clear. And a few months later, all the incident does is make me feel like a, an idiot. It's amazing to me because it made me realize that all it takes is for one thing to trigger... Reactions and responses. You know, the fact is, otherwise, you might be a great parent. You might be the friend that everybody else wishes they had. You might be such a kind person, such a loving neighbor. You might be the person that everybody goes to for calm counsel. You might be the helpful coworker. But let the right set of circumstances, or maybe better worded here, let the wrong set of circumstances happen. And instantly, despite all that you have been, you find yourself walking down David's path. And Christians, let's just be honest for a moment in here. We can be so self-righteous seeing all the faults of everyone in this world. And we can just like whine and cry about everything we see in this awful world we live in. And we can miss something here. And it's the danger that is so real and the danger that is so close. Where do these feelings and impulses come from? Where do they come from? Well, the danger is so close and it's so real because Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, Jesus tells us that 
what comes out of the mouth proceeds, proceeds from where? Proceeds from our heart. And this defiles a person for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So actually what I'd like to think, I, I'm tempted in moments where I feel convicted, say, actually, I don't know that it comes from my heart. I'm tempted to, to kind of just assure you, well, this is not the person who I am. I, I'm amazed at how often I hear that phrase. You, you hear it too, right? Some politician, some actor, some TV personality, some sports star misbehaves, embarrasses themselves. They get caught on camera. And so often... Their apology will include, this is not who I am. This is not who I am. But frankly, we know better, don't we? It is the person who I am. I did it. I said it. I I, I felt this way. I behaved in that way. Oh, don't get me wrong. I mean, you could say, I don't want to be that person. And that, I, I would think, would probably be very true. You could say, this isn't all of who I am, and that probably is very, very true. But in our moments like David had here, where he was just ready to wipe out everybody that he could, this is who he is in this moment. What a danger. What a danger that's so real and so close. But this passage stands out because... Amid the danger that I feel in this, and even the warning to my own heart, another theme emerges. If you have your Bibles open, I want us to continue reading. Like in verse 24, the whole story changes, and it's because Abigail, who is Nabal's wife, finds out about what Nabal's done, and it finds out about David's anger. And immediately she gathers like supplies and food and says, we're going to take care of David. We're going to take care of his people. And she goes out to meet David, and it says in verse 24, she fell at David's feet, and listen to what she says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. This is Abigail speaking. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She asked for forgiveness, and it's amazing how that seems to just dial down the throttle for David. She says in verse 26, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, David, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, because the Lord has restrained you from saving with your own hand, because he's done that in the past now, let, then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil in, to my Lord be his neighbor. In the past, David, the Lord has restrained you and you didn't have to be your own savior. In the present and in the future, David, God will deal with your enemies. So verse 27, now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. 
Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord. She's talking to David. The Lord will make you a a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil will not be found in you so long as you live. And if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, men like Saul, the, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies, David, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Even the language she uses, reminding David of another sling. Like, God's going to take care of you, David. He'll give you a sure house. You're fighting the battles of the Lord. And in verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, David, when he has finally appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord, at that moment, will have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. No grief or pangs of conscience for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Do you hear what Abigail's doing? It's absolutely beautiful. She's asked for forgiveness. She's given encouragement. And here she appeals to David's conscience. David, when you become king, you don't want this on your, you don't want this on your conscience. That it, like this petty act of violence. Like, well, why, David? Don't do this. Don't go down that road. And what happens is that David receives this and he listens. It says in verse 35, he obeys her word. He obeys. I think we can learn so much from Abigail. The value of asking for forgiveness to hostile situations, the value of encouragement, the value of an appeal to conscience. But I actually want to draw your attention really through Abigail to the restraining grace of God. I want you to see Abigail, yes, but actually I want you to see a God that restrains The grace from God that holds us back from doing something foolish or sinful. The restraining grace of God that, like we're headed down a path and all of a sudden our access down that path is blocked. And we can't go in the direction we're just bent and determined to go. Or maybe the grace that slows us down and gives us time to see, okay, there's another way of handling this. The grace that gently but clearly exposes our inconsistency. The grace that appeals to our conscience. This is what the God of all grace regularly does for his people. He restrains us. He does it more than we realize. God restrained the sin of Abraham when he put his wife in a compromising situation. In the book of Genesis, God restrains that sin from happening twice. He does the same thing with Abraham's son Isaac. God restrains the the sin of Joseph when he gives him willpower to refuse Potiphar's wife's advances. God restrains the sin of Balaam when Balaam is trying to prophesy against Israel. And God blocks that road. When Peter has an idea of like, Jesus, you're never going to the cross. And when he's strapping on his own sword saying, 
I'm going to take people out. You're not going to the cross. Jesus restrains him and says, put your sword away. I don't mean to imply that we can't run through the restraint. Oh, we can. Of course we can. Of course we do. But here David did not. And we don't have to either. Praise God. God can use people and God can use words and God can use circumstances. God can use dreams. God can use impressions. God can use getting caught. God can use getting corrected. God can use getting hurt. And he might do this to restrain us. When you hear the word restraint, if you're not, like if you wouldn't claim to be a follower of Jesus, I wonder if you go like, well, I don't know that I'd ever want to be restrained from something. Like restraint, that doesn't sound like any fun. But what if the restraint from God keeps you from hurting yourself and the lives of others that you care deeply about? What if the restraint is a catalyst for enjoying not just the temporary thing of the moment, but like the long-term, the even eternal things that God has designed? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what we want? What if there were no warnings? What if there were no roadblocks? What if we started to go down the road of despair and even self-harm and there was no restraint and we just kept going further and further down that road? What if we were to go down the road of lust and there's no restraint? What if lust or adultery were to consume our lives and no restraint and we were to self-destruct and hurt others? What if our anger just had like no governor on it and no restraint and our anger and our rage just was out of control. What if the Lord gave no restraint on your materialism, on your greed? What if God did not restrain you in your laziness and in your dishonesty? What if there was no roadblock for your bitterness and your envy and it just grew and grew and grew? What if there was no restraint on your harshness as a parent and you just tore apart your kid time after time saying the first thing that came into your mind comes out of your mouth and the relationship gets fractured even more? What if there was no restraint? We just don't know where some of these things might go, but God does this unusual thing at times. Like he'll... He'll make something malfunction. He'll give us another matter to attend to. He'll give us someone that just like talks us off the ledge, calms us down, someone that will let us see. Yeah, actually, there's, a, there's a, another side of this story. Someone calls in the nick of time. Even this week, I heard the story of someone, true story of someone that was on the verge of ending her own life. She's so filled with despair. And like on the night, I'm in the middle of the night when she was getting ready to end her own life. The phone rang, and it was a call from a cousin that lived time zones and countries away. And the cousin said, I just, it's like I heard a voice saying, if you ever want to talk to your cousin again, you better call her right now. And so I know it's the middle of the night, but I called you. God, restraint. God, help us to see, all of us to see, the foolishness of when we're like, well, strap on the sword. When we have those kind of moments and those kind of impulses and we're just going to go down the path of sin. I wonder how many times that's been the path I've been walking down, but God in his infinite mercy 
I didn't even realize what he's up to, but he restrained my path. I was unaware of how many times in the Bible that people actually prayed for this. So I, I came across Psalm 1913. Keep your servant from willful sins. It's like, man, I need to pray this more. Don't let them rule me. Psalm 119, verse 29, keep me from the way of deceit. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. Verse 133, don't let any sin dominate me. Psalm 141, verse 4, don't let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with men who commit sin. Could this be why Jesus taught us to pray in the prayer for his disciples? He said, pray this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, restrain my heart. The fact is, though, you can hear about God's restraining grace. And you may hear about all that and like, what amazing thing that God would would pull us back. But maybe it actually does not sound so much like good news to you today because you've barreled through the restraint. Oh, you saw the roadblock and the obstacle that God put, and you didn't care. Is there any good news there when you've gone down a path of doing things your way and you deal with the guilt and the shame and the regrets? Is there any good news here for you? And I actually believe there can be. Because there was a time when God did not restrain evil. And that was on the cross. Every bitter thought and every evil deed was laid upon Jesus with no restraint. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. This happened so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The cross isn't a religious symbol. The cross is real, and it, it's a sacrificial work of Jesus Christ for us. It was atoning for our sins where we barreled through the restraint that God and his mercy had given. And at the cross, he covers and he cleanses. And as we trust in him, The scripture makes this amazing promise, and that is we can be made new. Our record can be cleared. Our guilt can be gone. And there's even more good news because God gives us his Holy Spirit and then goes to work on our hearts. And he transforms us. He transforms us, making us more sensitive to our conscience, more willing to obey when the Lord convicts our heart. This morning, I, I desperately want us to see the danger that is so close and so real because it's inside of us. And then I want us to ask God for restraining grace, to, to pull back, to hold us back. And if you have not yet met this God of grace, if you have not yet met his son, Jesus Christ, Today would be the day where you could call out to him and tell him, I want to know you more. I hear of this grace. I hear of what you did on the cross for sinners like us. 
I want, I want to know you better. You could initiate steps toward Jesus Christ. And what you may not realize is he's already headed in your direction. That's why you're here. That's why you're here in this message. We'd love to talk with you afterwards. There will be people available to pray and have this discussion further. If you want to call out to the Lord and say, I want to know you in your grace. I want to know who you are and what you've done. As we see the danger, as we are thankful for his restraining grace, can we pray and thank the Lord for these things? Father, thank you for allowing us to see what's going on in our hearts. For the person that was like seeing themselves in a mirror today, I pray that 1 Samuel 25 would be your restraining grace to them. Turn us from our own way. Make our heart soft and sensitive instead of hard and cold. I pray that we would meet you this morning as the God of all grace. We've already recognized that your grace is amazing grace, and we thank you that it's also restraining grace. Do more in this moment than we could ask or imagine. We ask by the powerful name of Jesus that you have authority and victory in our lives. Amen.